Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 67, Shinoda the Steward. In the last act, Ibn Talwan was essentially in the peak of his career, where he just finished up consolidating his rule over Syria and Palestine and in the process, crushed an attempted coup by his son. We also saw how Shinoda the steward was becoming too old and too sick for the job, and his grip and his subordinates slipped, which briefly ruined the otherwise good relations with the government of Ibn Tawlun. Now, this picture is somewhat skewed by his biographer, an eccentric writer who was basically writing the struggles of the patriarch, rather than a full account biography. So before going back to Ibn Tawlun, I would like to wrap up the career of Shinuda. While Ibn Tawlun was in Syria, Bauer devolved into his chief secretary, an able administrator, but not above extracting money from the patriarch, if the opportunity presented itself. This opportunity came when one of Shinoda's subordinates, a monk from a small monastery in the Delta, decided to push his elevation to a deacon outside the normal channels. He left his monastery and traveled to Fustat, where he connected to the right elite and managed to get a letter of recommendation to present to the Pope to be elevated. Now, there is really nothing out of the ordinary at this point, and under normal circumstances, the Pope would have elevated the monk to the rank of deacon, or even a priest, and then he would go back to his monastery and everyone would be happy. Shinoda made it a point to put a line against simony early in his career. But in our medieval world, a letter of recommendation from an elite could do a lot even if it was obtained by spreading gifts around. In that specific situation so, Shunuda was bedridden with gout, and his secretary snubbed the monk without giving him an audience with the patriarch. The monk, in a moment of anger, decided to vent by writing a letter to the administration in Fustat. Quote, What I have submitted to you, O Amir, is that your rule is over all the land of Egypt, and all who hear of your rule fear it, except the patriarch who resides in Alexandria. And he does deeds which anger God, is that, that he bewitches certain people of the Muslims, that he may make them enter into the desert, and baptize them, and settle them in his religion. If the emir will strengthen me, then I will go to the desert and bring out certain of the Muslims who are in it, whom Shinuda has made monks, and they will say, it was the patriarch who made us monks, and did this with us. Basically, the monk was accusing Shinuda of converting Muslims and turning them into monks, an act that would be punishable with this to Shinuda and the converts. The guys in Fustat knew that Chinuda was bedridden, so 
so they ignored the letter. And even if it was true, Ibn Tawrun was building a personal kingdom, and chasing a couple of monks in the desert was the last thing that he or his administrators wanted to do. Nonetheless, almost by pure chance, on his way back from Alexandria after crushing his son's failed coup, the monk managed to obtain an audience with Ibn Tawlun when he stopped and rested by the monk's home village. There, he presented the letter again personally to Ibn Tawlun, who was absolutely disgusted with the monk and saw him for what he was, a man-child. So, he dismissed him and told his chief secretary to look into it, not really interested in following up. The secretary for his part saw the whole thing as a nice project to undertake to extract some money from Shinoda. So he played along. He told the monk to go ahead and bring those who were converted to Fustat for an investigation and gave him two Turkish soldiers for muscle. The monk then grabbed one of his colleagues in his old monastery who he did not get along with and insisted to the soldiers that he was a Muslim that was converted, despite the supposed convert bringing witnesses that he was born a Christian, he was legally tried and found guilty of converting. He was then thrown into prison by the secretary until he revert back to Islam. But the secretary didn't really care about this guy. He was really after Shinoda or more accurately, the monetary fine that he hoped to extract from Shinoda. Now, despite his illness, the patriarch was well informed of what was going on in Fustat, and he took some measures to protect himself from the secretary. The most important of those measures was appointing two bishops to represent him in Fustat on account of his illness. Despite that representation, he was still in prison and, as expected, was asked for money. Shnuda was not going to play that game so. He was a dying old man and did not have much to lose by this point. So he refused to pay any money and waited to die in prison. In response, the secretary imprisoned his two bishops as well. But the line still held. Finally, after a month or so, the Coptic elite in Fustat reached an agreement with the secretary and the Pope was released. Ibn Talun then heard about the whole incidents and basically blamed the whole thing on the monk. He was imprisoned, beaten to the point of death and then died from an infection he contracted in the prison. And if you're wondering, the quote-unquote convert was released and allowed to go back to his monastery, where he continued his monastic career with everyone eventually forgetting about the whole incidents. Shunuda, for his part, did not survive for long after being released, dying in early 880 AD after close to 22 years on the throne of St. Mark. His reign ended up lasting five caliphs plus Ibn Tawlun, where he witnessed 
the demi-decrees of a mutawakkil, the chaos of the Shia rebellions, and the economic expansion of Ibn Tawlun. Until the last few years of his reign, he was always building something, whether it be sewers for Alexandria or a fortress for the desert monasteries. Shnuda was a steward, and he left the church on a good footing. His successors, while not free of trouble, would have a much easier time managing the affairs of the church and the flock. Also, all the financial infrastructure that was built by Shinuda would end up collapsing very quickly after his death, and simony would again become a fact of life. And that's because the beast that pervaded the 870s AD was about to go away. You see, as the Zingi rebellion was wrapping up in Iraq, the administration in Baghdad decided it was time to get back Syria from Ibn Tawlun. In response, he organized another military expedition in an ambitious project to move the seat of the Caliph all the way to Egypt. A project which we will get into in a second needed a lot of money and our new patriarch immediately facing intrigue from his own bishops was a prime target for those fundraising efforts. Shinoda's immediate successor was not the most capable of administrators, and his methods of phrasing that money would end up entrenching simony for a long time and essentially take away most of the revenue streams that the patriarchy depended on to operate. When Shinoda died, a certain Khalil was ordained to follow him. We don't know much about Khalil, how he was elevated or when he was elevated. The first thing that is recorded about him was his conflict with one of his bishops, and then his financial troubles with Ibn Tawlun. Presumably, after he was ordained, he made a tour of Egypt, where he met with the local elites, ordained priests, and consecrated churches. In one of the cities that he stopped at, in a diocese called Sekka, he was asked to consecrate a church by the local elite. He happily agreed, and traveled there to consecrate the new church and celebrate the liturgy. The bishop of the diocese, involved in the project from the beginning, ended up running late to that liturgy, and Khalil, in a minor violation of the usual protocol, started the consecration without the bishop. When the bishop arrived and saw that they started without him, he threw a tantrum and publicly rebuked the patriarch. Quote, Who made you do this in my diocese without my order or presence? Then he went to the sanctuary and took the offering which was on it and broke it and threw it down and went in anger. Khalil watched the tantrum in disbelief, and once the bishop left, he continued the liturgy and retired to consult with the group of clergy he brought with him about what to do. The next day, a senate consisting of whoever was in the patriarch entourage assembled, and they excommunicated the bishop and ordained another.
which was a bit harsh, but not unreasonable. Remember, Khalil was a new patriarch at this point, and his authority was an open question. Unfortunately, as it was common in this period, the bishop or ex-bishop at this point, rather than accept the judgment of his colleagues, he decided to go to Fustat and complain to Ibn Tawlun. Ibn Tawlun, preoccupied with the problems in Syria, didn't really pay much attention to the bishop until he mentioned that, quote, Khalil has a lot of money. Recognizing the opportunity for what it is, Ibn Tawlun summoned the Pope with a letter that sums up his diplomatic genius very well. Quote, You, O chief of the Christians, are in peace and you have no need of gold or silver, but only of bread to eat and a garment to wear. I have learned, indeed, that you have much money, and innumerable vessels of gold and silver, and all kinds of silk belonging to the churches. I love you, and respect your old age, and I have summoned you, not unjustly, and not with force, since it is necessary that you should be honored and not despised. Give me what you have to take to the Caliph, and you shall find grace with him and with me. We will get to it fully when we talk about the legacy of Ibn Tawlun. But he really knew his Christian subjects, and when he was in Egypt, he did not live in a palace or even a military camp. But his favorite retreat was a Milkite monastery north of Fustat, among the monks. He knew the monastic oath of poverty, and he knew that the patriarch was a monk, and thus his request for money was completely different than the usual extortion or even monetary fine over some offense. It was grounded in Christian theology. Khalil came to Fustat and met with the governor there, where he explained to him that he, unlike what he have heard, does not have a lot of money, and quote, I am before you, do what you will. Ibn Tawlun did not like this answer, and he wasn't convinced that Khalil did not have money, and he was probably right. As we will see, Khalil did have some money, not a lot like he was accused of, but he wasn't by any means broke. He was thrown into a prison, a somewhat comfortable one, where his food was noted to be, quote, bread, salt, and boiled beans, which is honestly pretty good for a medieval prison. Also, he managed to pay his guard 300 dinars to build him his own private bathroom. So like I said, Khalil was not exactly broke. And in a completely unrelated note, but a fascinating one, one of the people that Khalil ended up hanging out with in the prison was Al-Mudabbar. Remember him? The financial official that was in charge before Ibn Tawlun and was hated by the Copts? Well, now he was best friends with Khalil in prison, and according to the history of the patriarchs, 
the same primary source that derided his tyranny earlier. He was, quote, a trustworthy man who loved almsgiving. Now, if you indulge me for a second to talk about the sources for this upcoming period, I would really appreciate it. The history of the patriarchs, the only primary source written by the Copts, is a unique document. It was basically written by multiple authors and with different perspectives and at varying intervals. The guy who wrote the biography of Shenouda was an eyewitness and wrote to canonize his patriarch. His biography ran 40 pages long and it was full of Shenouda's struggles rather than his more impressive administrative acumen and ability. The guy who wrote the biography of Khalil and the next few patriarchs was Michael, the Bishop of Tennis, and he wrote his history almost 200 years later after the fact. He was an enlightened bishop and wrote his history for the sake of history rather than any secondary motive. So we get a, a more realistic account, warts and all. But also, since he is writing events that was way before his time, some events get a little bit distorted. He did not live under the tyrannical taxes of Al-Mudabbir. So, Al-Mudabbir is only remembered as the cool rich guy who hanged out with the patriarch in prison, which, while partially true, is clearly distorted. But anyway, that's why the podcast is being produced every couple of weeks now. There's lots of weeds to wade through in here. Khalil ended up being in prison for a whole year, with Ibn Tawlon being lobbied hard to release him by the Christian elite in Fustad. This is really where we start to see the cops starting to be part of the civil administration machinery, as Ibn Tawlon was very keen and using merit to rise through the ranks rather than family or religion. He was the son of a Turkish slave after all. Lobbying Ibn Tawlon was two of his close Christian administrators who were brothers, Bissus and Abraham. Additionally, what is equivalent to his prime minister, a certain Ahmad ibn al-Mahdarani, relied heavily on another Christian, John, in his day-to-day work. Their lobbying went all the way to Ibn Tawlun's mother, who, while sympathetic to them, told them that her son would not listen to her. Eventually, Ibn Tawlun got tired of hearing about the patriarch, and told the secretaries that if they want him out of prison, then they needed to collect the vast sum of 20,000 dinars, which, if I have to guess, was a ridiculous number to make them go away. The secretaries agreed so, and negotiated a two-installment payment. And to make sure that they understood what was on the line, Ibn Tawlun made them personally liable for the money, rather than the patriarch or the church. So, Khalil was released, and he basically told the secretaries, Thanks a lot for getting me out, but I do not have the 10,000 dinars that you're asking me to come up with. But here's what I can do for you. There are 10 open dioceses that need bishops. Find me suitable men 
and bring them. And we will ask them to contribute to what we owed. And naturally, the secretaries looked for men who can pay a sizable, quote-unquote, gift, which opened up the doors of simony. I don't want to be too harsh on Khalil. The agreement that the secretaries negotiated was a really bad one. There was just no way the patriarchy could pay 20,000 dinars without extraordinary measures. Those elites were not above conspiring with Ibn Talun for personal enrichment. But even after the gifts from the bishops, they still had to make up the difference from their own pockets. So it seems here that they vastly overestimated how much Khalil and the patriarchy had. At any rate, they scrambled and got the first installment to Ibn Tawun. But even then, more extraordinary measures had to take place to come up with the second 10,000 dinars. A synod assembled and for the first time instituted a formal this tax on the Christians to be collected by the bishops and sent to the patriarchy. An extra tax outside the normal government taxation. And then, what really damaged the financial infrastructure of the patriarchy occurred. Khalil decided to sell all the property that the church owned in and around Alexandria. Property that brought revenue that paid for the clergy of the city. As you would expect, the clergy protested very loudly to that measure. And to avoid a revolt, Khalil promised them a thousand dinar payment every year in lieu of that land. Money that he had no practical way of getting. The patriarch got into a bit of a funk and started signing documents as the last, i.e. the last patriarch of the church in Egypt. Fortunately, he would not be the last, and his troubles would not last for long. Ibn Talun left Egypt for Syria, and when he came back, he was very sick and dying. His heir and younger son, eager to consolidate his rule, would forget all about the rest of the money that the patriarch owed, and he put some effort into building a positive relationship with the patriarch. Which brings up to the end of the Zengi rebellion and the caliphate effort to take back Syria from Ibn Tawlun. Efforts that ultimately failed, but ended up killing Ibn Tawlun in the process. You see, in the fall of 882, Ibn Tawlun learned that one of his lieutenants in northern Syria had defected to the administration in Baghdad. And I say administration rather than the caliph because the situation in Baghdad was a bit convoluted. Basically, the legitimate caliph was a prisoner in his own palace and his brother and a group of Turkish generals were running the show. Farzer threatening Ibn Talun rule in Syria was serious intrigue in the city of Tarsus that was bringing the city in Baghdad's orbit, 
So, Ibn Talun decided to raise a lot of money, take his army, and as usual, through a mix of diplomacy, show of force, and bribes, get back control of Syria. On his way to Damascus, he got a surprising message. The legitimate caliph, under the pretext of a hunting expedition, was planning to escape from Baghdad and put himself under the protection of Ibn Tawlun. A tremendous opportunity that made Ibn Tawlun giddy. He would await the caliph in Damascus, then parade him through Syria to win it over, and finally build him a nice palace in Egypt and go conquer, or shall I say liberate, Iraq on his behalf. Ibn Tawlun was just about to get handed the keys of the entire caliphate. Alas, in this, he would end up flying too close to the sun. The caliph plans to escape leaked, and his brother acted quickly to ensure that Ibn Tawlun and the caliph do not join forces. About halfway between Baghdad and Damascus, the caliph was caught and brought to Samarra in chains. The brother then declared Ibn Tawlun a rebel and assigned another governor to rule Egypt and Syria, a mostly symbolic appointment as Ibn Tawlun had more men, more money, and at least in Egypt and Syria, more legitimacy than anyone else. Nonetheless, Ibn Tawlun became attached to the idea of liberating Iraq and devised a super ambitious plan. A play borrowed from the heyday of the Byzantine church councils. What if all the Muslim scholars, governors, and important men were to gather in Damascus? And what if, upon looking on the sad state of the caliphate, and how the caliph is a prisoner in his own house, they decided to do something about it. They can declare that the brother of the caliph is an infidel, and that if Ibn Tawun were to fight him, it would be holy jihad. Not only that, by declaring jihad, the council of Damascus would legitimize anyone who decided not to pay taxes to Baghdad, or anyone who fights them for that matter. And if a soldier died in that struggle, well, he would go directly to heaven as a martyr. It was really ambitious from the part of Ibn Tawlun, as it had no precedent in the Islamic Ummah. The Caliph declared jihad, not the Imams. And unlike the Christian idea that the Holy Spirit guides church councils, Islam had no such thing. As far as the Ummah was concerned, these were a bunch of guys sitting around and giving empty proclamations. In a matter of fact, even among those who attended the council and with Ibn Tawlun pressuring them, there was a lot of hesitation about formally declaring jihad against fellow Muslims. It was none other than the Egyptian delegation itself and its leading qadi, straight up refusing to agree to any of Ibn Tawlun's demands, was the theological justification that, 
quote, the obligation of jihad could not be invoked in a conflict among Sunnis, since the dispute did not weaken the capacity of Dar al-Islam to confront non-Muslims or heretics. The very same Qadi went as far as praising the Caliph's brother for trying to maintain public order in Iraq, which, as you would expect, completely infuriated Ibn Tawloon. In Baghdad, in response to the council, a decree came out that ordered that all the imams of the Ummah proclaim that, quote, Almighty God, make of Ibn Tawloon an example for those who will come after, for you will not permit the scheme of the corrupter to succeed. You have to give it to him. Ibn Tawloon, unlike any other Turkish general of his generation, understood that violence without legitimacy is counterproductive. In the events surrounding the Council of Damascus, he was not fighting Baghdad for land or resources. Rather, he fought them for legitimacy. And despite all of his efforts and his vision, he still lost. The Council of Damascus failed, and the Ummah stayed fractured. In response to that failure, Ibn Tawlun scaled back his ambition and went back to his original goal, pacify Syria and make sure none of its cities slip from his control, by persuasion and diplomacy first, but by force if needed to. The first city that he targeted was Tarsus, where its governor, an ambitious and a clever eunuch, was intriguing to position himself for the highest bidder. Ibn Tawlun decided that a show of force is needed, and set upon removing the eunuch. Not surprisingly, upon seeing an army approaching, the eunuch closed the city gates and refused to submit to Ibn Tawlun by force. Like I said, he was a clever guy, and he knew that Ibn Tawlun was hesitant to jump into fights. He predicted correctly that rather than try and storm the city, Ibn Tawlun would settle for a siege, and he planned accordingly, diverting a river into the Egyptian camp and ruining the operation and forcing Ibn Tawlun to retreat. And this is where things started to break apart. The flood, the hasty retreat, the long distance moving, all combined and Ibn Tawlun fell sick. Quickly, he was not able to mount his horse, and it became apparent to him and those around him that he was dying. He ordered a retreat all the way back to Egypt, where he arranged for his younger son, Khamraweya to succeed him. And, still best off about the Council of Damascus, that the Qadi that opposed him there be imprisoned. A few days after, where it became clear that he will die, fearing eternal judgment, he went back and decided to release the Qadi. But, as despite him and his disbed, the Qadi refused to be released from prison. 
he got sick himself and was dying. Finally, on May 884, Ibn Talwan passed away after 16 years of ruling Egypt and transforming the very nature of government for the whole of the caliphate. He left a considerable legacy, and we didn't really get into it, but his financial and economic policies really made his rule such a turning point. But no worries, that would be part of our story next week. Also, he kind of left another kind of legacy. There is a semi-famous Christian martyr whose hagiography has a few things to say about Ibn Tawlun. So, it should be fun. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.